You're listening to Summit Podcasts, where you'll find sermon audio, weekly discussions of the message, the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and much, much more. Subscribe today at summitpodcast.church and share this episode with your friends. Summit Church, every life made different. Ah, so today we're starting a new series, and the series is called The Temple. And this series really is all about taking the temple of Jerusalem, uh, both the first and second temple, the, the temple of, of um, Solomon and the temple of Herod, uh, and talking through those places. Because here's the thing, we will read about the temple in scripture, but it doesn't make sense to us. We don't really understand it. Uh, they'll talk about the ephod or the lampstands or the different things, the courts, the gates, and none of it really makes sense. We don't understand it. So we just kind of blow through it. And because we do that, we are robbing ourselves of some context that we need in order to really understand the richness of scripture. And so my goal for this series is to help you understand why the... Uh, the Jewish people in antiquity loved the temple, why they loved it in the New Testament and why it should be important for us today. Well, if we will understand those things, it'll help us understand uh, Christ so much better. And my, my hope is that you'll have a deeper affection for Jesus as we walk through this series together. As you gain understanding about some of the things, the practical things about the temple, my hope is that you will you'll have a deeper affection for Christ. And so that's really my heart during this. So if you're a fan of history, you're gonna dig this because we're gonna get into some history. If you're not, uh, just bear with me. How about that? Can we do that? And so just stick around. Don't check out because I'll try to keep you engaged as much as I possibly can. So let me just get started. Um, so the Ark of the Covenant was, was given. Um, it, it was representative of the presence of God to the nation of Israel. When David became king, uh, they did not, had not yet conquered Jerusalem. And so up to that point, the Ark of the Covenant would basically be housed in different places. And when, when David conquered Jerusalem, he wanted to find a place for the Ark. And he found this place called Mount Moriah. And this is the place that was selected. And Mount Moriah was important for a couple of different reasons. The first is this, in Genesis chapter 22, we see Abraham, which is the patriarch of the Jewish faith and also the Muslim faith, um, and for that matter, in Christianity as well. So Abraham has this one son, and he has this promise that his descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the heavens. He's got this promise that he will have generations of people that will be in his lineage, but he's got this one son, Isaac. And God tells him, he says, sacrifice your son. I want you to sacrifice your son to me. And so they gather the supplies and they go up to Mount Moriah to offer sacrifice. And here on Mount Moriah is where um, Abraham is going to sacrifice his son. He's brokenhearted. He doesn't want to do this, but he's willing to do it because of his obedience to God. And in this moment, God provides a, a ram for him. And this ram offers a substitution for this sacrifice for his son. So his son was going to be sacrificed, but in this moment, the ram was the substitute for his son. And this is an important part of Jewish history. They will talk about it. They'll reference this. It's a miracle. And it happened on Mount Moriah. We also see that this is the place in 2 Samuel where God tells uh, David to build a, a, a place to offer sacrifice, build an altar, and he decides this is a perfect spot, this threshing floor of Arana. 
And so he goes to this man, Arana, and he says, hey, I wanna buy your threshing floor and I wanna buy your cattle to offer sacrifice. And Arana goes, no, 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 you can't do that. I'm gonna give it to you. It's my pleasure to give it to you. And David says, I can't offer God something which cost me nothing. He said, I can't give God a sacrifice, which wasn't even a, really a sacrifice. So he said, I wanna pay. So he pays him. And this spot where the threshing floor was, was Mount Moriah. And it was the same spot historically where, where, uh, Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac and God provided for him. Now, fast forward, we see this in this moment. This is the spot David selects um, for, for the temple, for the future temple. And if you, if you wanna take it a step further, uh, fast forward a few hundred more years to the life of Jesus and when Jesus was crucified, he was actually, technically, he was taken to Mount Moriah for crucifixion. Now, Mount Moriah is a, a region, and so about a quarter mile from where the temple stood is where Golgotha was, and this is the same spot where Jesus was crucified. So what do we see is that this spot has a lot of historic importance for the Jewish people. Now, they don't put as much importance, obviously, on the, the, the crucifixion of Christ, um, but there is significant importance historically. This is more than just luck that this all happened at the same spot. So David didn't build the first temple. His son built the first temple, Solomon, and he builds the temple and it is magnificent. Um, God gives him very specific standards that he is supposed to meet, what it's supposed to look like, how it's supposed to happen. And he, uh, he builds the first temple. And uh, this is around 957 BC. Um, when he builds the temple, there are a number of different places throughout the world at that time for people to worship God. Uh, the Jews can, and they found temples in Egypt and in Syria and just different parts of the world that, uh, that Jews in antiquity would worship. So Josiah was king of Judah and he is consolidating power. Now this is the thing, the temple was a place not just for worship, but it was a, a place of civic connection as well. People would go to the temple, not just for the religious purposes, but for the social purposes, relational purposes, all these things as well. It was multifaceted and the temple was the center of Hebrew life. It was so important for them in so many ways. And so Josiah comes to power and he decides, um, hey, you know what? You can't offer sacrifices anywhere else except the temple in Jerusalem. This is the only real temple. And so what it does is it, it elevates the importance of the temple in Jerusalem even more. It was important before, but now if I wanna be atoned for, I've gotta go back to Jerusalem and offer sacrifice. And what this does is it helps pave the way for some of the Jewish feasts and festivals where people would come literally from all over the world to Jerusalem for a celebration. And this is specifically where we see in the book of Acts, uh, people came from all over the world to celebrate the feast of, of harvest, which was Pentecost. And so they came together and they experienced the power of God. They heard the message of Jesus and they take this back to their worlds. Everywhere they go, they go back and they take this message. So this is really, really important that he had done this because this feels like it was somewhat arbitrary. It feels like a power move that he was saying, no, 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 this is the only place you can worship because he was consolidating power. But what he was actually doing was fulfilling the plan of God, which was to bring all these people to Jerusalem um, in the first century church so that the God gospel could be distributed, dispersed throughout the known world. So Josiah does this around 640 BC. Um, and not long after that, the Babylonians come to power and, led by Nebuchadnezzar and they march into Jerusalem and Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians destroy the temple in 586 BC. 
Thankfully, the, the Babylonians didn't stay in power for long. The Persians overthrow the Babylonians and the Persians swiftly uh, release all of the Jewish exiles. So everybody that Babylon took into captivity after they destroyed the walls in Jerusalem and the, the temple. So the king of Persia releases them to go back. And so they go back and they begin rebuilding the walls. And this is where we see the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, um, the rebuilding of the temple and walls. And so this was important because they begin rebuilding the temple. And the temple is rebuilt um, in... 539 BC, uh, I'm sorry, it's completed in 516 BC. It was started in 537 BC. So in 516 BC, it's rebuilt. Well, fast forward a few hundred years and the Romans are in power now. And there's a man in charge of Jerusalem. He is a, a Roman, he is a, a, a king on behalf of the Romans essentially. And his name is Herod. And you might have heard the name of Herod because of the Christmas story. And he was Herod the Great. And Herod loved to do big civic events. He would love to build things that would carry his name. And so his name would be known. Little did he know that his name would primarily be known for the fact that he tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. But he wanted to make his name known. He wanted to carry favor with the, with the Jews in Jerusalem. And so he set out on a project to expand the temple. And so what he did is he, he, he took the footprint of the temple and he made it much, much larger. He made the courtyards much bigger. Uh, he took more ground for this area and he did something pretty spectacular with it. And I wanna put up the picture of the temple as it would have appeared in the days of Jesus. So this is the temple as it would have, as it would have appeared to Jesus. So Jesus would have worshiped at a temple like this. This is what it would have looked like. And so one of the things that's significant is that there's an Eastern gate. So the temple is oriented to face the East. And so this golden gate on my left toward the bottom here is actually the Eastern gate. It's called the beautiful gate. It's got a number of different names in scripture. This is actually what was referred to as Solomon's porch or Solomon's portico in scripture. So this Eastern side, uh, what you see is this colonnade that goes all the way around the temple facility. Uh, it only had the Eastern side originally and this was built by Solomon. It was called Solomon's Porch. Now, what Herod did is he expanded this to go all the way around. And what it did is it provided commerce. It was a market. It was a place to gather. What we see is that, that, that there were col columns on the interior and walls on the exterior. So it was an open air porch. So people could put their goods underneath this to sell, people could meet. We see in Acts chapter five that the church would gather at Solomon's porch for worship together. We would see, uh, we see in, in Acts chapter three, Peter and John are going through this gate. They're going through the beautiful gate to go to worship. And as they do, they meet the man who's lame. They, and this is where he says, silver and gold have I none, but that which I have I give to you today in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, stand up and walk. He takes them by the hand, they go into the temple. And it says when they came out, they come out to Solomon's porch. And so what we see is a number of different things were going on in this area. And, and this area was expanded um, so so that people could gather here in a greater way. So this is the center of life for so many people. This is also the place where Jesus drove out the money changers because money changers, they, they flourished in this area. So this is where Jesus made the whip, fashioned the whip, and then drove them out. And he said, my house will be a house of prayer. This is an important place. This was the center of life for these people. This is how they lived. This is what they did. This is what they thought about. I mean, it was natural for them to go to the temple every day because it was part of their lives. It wasn't an afterthought for them. 
So this is the way the temple looked in the time of Jesus. Now, the unfortunate part is the Jewish people rebelled against the Romans and the Romans came in and destroyed the temple in 70 AD. Now, this is significant for a couple of reasons. Number one, this day has become a day of mourning for the Jewish people because uh, the temple was destroyed. But not only was the temple destroyed, the same temple was destroyed on the same day by the Babylonians. And you could say that's luck or happenstance, but I think there's symmetry to this. And so Jewish people, they remember this day, it's called the Tish, Tisha B'Av. And it's the, it's the day of mourning for them. They mourn for 25 hours, uh, for, for literally from sundown to, to the time night has happened. So it's 25 hours and they fast. They don't eat or drink anything. Um, they abstain from, from sexual contact within marriage. I mean, they take this very seriously and they don't just mourn the loss of the temple. Um, any significant historic event for the Jewish people, this is a time of mourning for them. So they mourn the Holocaust. They mourn uh, the, 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 the death of the 10 martyrs at the hands of the Romans. There's all kinds of things that they do in this day because they happened on the same day. So what we see is AD 70, the temple's destroyed. A little bit of the Eastern gate remains and it was actually rebuilt a couple of times. And we'll talk about that a little more next week. But the Eastern gate, there's a little bit of that, but what was remaining of the, the city and what you may have heard about is the Western wall. And the Western wall or the Wailing wall is actually on the Northwest corner. So oriented the way it is here, it would be on the right-hand side on the top. So that wall is all that remained of the temple. And this is where today you might see people uh, that are Jewish, they will go to the Western Wall and offer prayers. They will uh, write down prayers and put it in the cracks in the walls, but they will sit and pray because this is the last remnant of the temple, and this is why it's significant for them. Now, what remains of the temple, the mount, is where the, the Muslims have taken over and they put a mosque there. It's called the Dome of the Rock, and it's one of the most holy places in the Muslim faith. And this is why there's such controversy over this site and why there's such tension over this site, because it has such deep meaning for Jewish people. Um, but the, the, the Muslim people have claimed it as their own. And this is, this is part of the issue in the Middle East is things like this. And uh, one of the things I read said that for many Jews, this day will remain a day of mourning until the temple is restored to its rightful place. So there's still hope within Judaism that God will restore the temple to the place that it rightfully belongs and that they'll be able to offer sacrifices and worship there. And then this day, which has been a day of mourning, can become a day of celebration. So as you can see, there's a lot there. And I gave you the tiniest bit of information, as, much, as little as I could to make sure I didn't let you fall asleep. So this might be the place where you're going, well, what difference does this make to me? I'm glad you asked. So what we're gonna do, and, and generally speaking, we're gonna start on the outside and work our way in. Like I said, next week I wanna talk about gates a little bit and the courts, but, but I wanna share some ideas with you. So I'm gonna start in Ephesians chapter two, and this is Paul talking to the church at Ephesus. So Paul is speaking to them in Ephesians chapter two, verse 11, and he says this, he says, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. So he said, I want you to notice this language. He said, you used to be outsiders, okay? 
You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies, not their hearts. So he said, the Jewish people who were proud of being circumcised, uh, they called you outsiders, even though their circumcision really only changed their bodies, it didn't transform their hearts. It wasn't a heart change, it was just a body change. And he says in verse 12, in those days you were living apart from Christ. Again, he's using this language, outsider, apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. Or again, he's talking about this, this division here. And you did not know the covenant promises God had made with them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. So he's saying, hey, let me paint this picture. This is who you are. You are apart from God. You're apart from hope. You're a non-citizen. You're a foreigner and an outsider, essentially. He goes on to say, verse 13, but now you've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away, again, we're using this language. You were far away from God, but now you've brought, been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. So he's saying you were one way, but God has changed your condition. Now you are another. You were far from God. You were apart from God. You were excluded from citizenship. You were outside the body. But now through the blood of Christ, you've been brought near. Listen to this in verse 14. For Christ himself has brought peace to us he united Jews and Gentiles into one people in his own body on the cross. He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. And this is a place where we can go, yes, yes, okay, there's no more hostility. But, but we think this is a metaphor. That there's a wall of hostility, but it's a metaphor, right? It's not a real wall of hostility, but it is. It's a real wall of hostility. Um, we don't get it because we don't understand the temple. See, the people Paul was writing to, they understood the temple. Even non-Jews, even Gentiles understood the reference he's making. He's talking about being separate. He's talking about being an outsider. He's talking about being removed. He's all these things. And then he says, in the blood of Christ, through the cross, Jesus broke down the wall of hostility that separated Jew and Gentile. So what does he mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me go back to the picture of the temple. If you look at the picture of the temple here, there is there's the, the porticos that go all the way around. And then the next layer inside of that is called the court of Gentiles. And this is the area that the Gentiles could come in. If you were not Jewish, you could come into the court of Gentiles. Anyone could come into the court of Gentiles. That's what made it a great place for commerce. This is also what made it a great place for people who couldn't uh, earn a wage. If you were a widow or if you were, if you were a beggar, you would come to one of these gates or inside the courts and you would beg because people were in there. So this is a great place for people to go. Gentiles could go there. They could not go any further than that court. And there was a wall that separated. You can see a small wall around the perimeter of the actual temple complex. And the wall was not a big wall like you'd see on the Southern border, you know, 20 feet with razor wire. It wasn't like that. This was a small wall maybe three feet tall. And it was a wall of division. It was called the Soreg, S-O-R-E-G. And this wall was the delineation between where Jews and Gentiles could go. Because Jews could be in the court of Gentiles, but Gentiles could not come any further than this. In fact, it was punishable by death. <laughs> you think you've been to churches that are judgmental about you? Like, man, they weren't nice to me because I smell like cigarette smoke. Did they try to kill you? Because if they didn't, then at least they're doing better than these guys were. And you think this is an exaggeration. It is not. They, they, found, they found different 
pieces of signs through the years that led them to believe that yes, this was actually the case, but they actually found an intact sign in 1871. And in 1871, this sign says, according to translation, no stranger is to enter within the balustrade round the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. They take this very, very, very seriously. And it's easy for us to go, well, that's crazy. Why would they do that? So put yourself in the position of a Jewish person. Their understanding of who God is, their view of who God is, and they understand, hey, in order to be near God, you've gotta be holy. I mean, not holy like we would measure it, like really, really holy. In fact, the, the, the only person that was allowed to go into the most holy place, the holy of holies, where the, the Ark of the Covenant was and the, the presence of God was, was the high priest, and he could only go in once a year. That's how, that's how holy they were. They limited people's access the further you would go in, the closer you would get to the holy of holies. And the reason they did this is because they have an understanding of how holy our God is. They said, our God is a holy God. In fact, we talked a lot about this in January of last year. We did a series called Holier Than Thou. If you're interested, you can go back and listen to that. But, but they had a, a keen awareness of how holy God is. And they knew, hey, if God is this holy, if you're, if you're not a believer, you don't belong anywhere past this line. We wanna limit your access to a holy God. We wanna limit access of unholy people to a holy God. And I get this idea because we have limitations on things people can do in our church. Um, we want people, if you're gonna be a member uh, or if you're gonna be on the worship team or, or leading a class or a small group, we expect you to be members because there's things that we think are holy that people that have no standard of holiness shouldn't be handling. So we understand this, but here's what happens in this system. What happens is they, they begin to develop a system of insiders and outsiders. They begin to go, well, well, you can't cross this line, but we can because we're special. We have the proper heritage. We were born the right way. And you are just a Gentile, so you can't come in. And you think, well, we would never do something like that today. We wouldn't? Well, you're not dressed the right way. You can't come to our church. Well, your hair's too long. Your tattoos are showing. You smell like cigarette smoke. And it's easy for us to go, oh, we would never go to church like that. <laughs> we, would, we would never go to church like that. Our pastor's cool. He's got a beard and wears Carhartt. That's how cool I am. <laughs> but do you know what happens? We start judging the other church. Oh, those people, they're crazy. They wear suits to church. Can you believe they wear suits to church? And all of a sudden, we've done the same thing. Now, what's happened is we feel like, well, our perspective is better and holier and righter than theirs is. <laughs> they think you've got to sing hymns to have worship. We don't, we're free from that. We only sing our kind of worship. Can I tell you something? I don't know what the worship set is gonna look like in heaven someday, but I am convinced we're all gonna be a little disappointed when they're not singing the songs that, oh, well, they're not singing it the way I like. <laughs> oh, they only have hymns and pipe organs here. Mm. Like, I don't know what it's gonna look like. But all of that stuff is gonna be done away with. Do you know why? Because what Paul is saying is the wall of hostility has been torn down through Jesus Christ. Now, there is no hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Jews can't say, we're doing it the right way, you're doing it wrong. And Gentiles can't say, we're doing it the right way, you're doing it wrong. There is no hostility between them now. Do you know what that means for us? There is no hostility. But 
between Pentecostals and Presbyterians. There is no... There is no hostility between charismatic and reformed churches. There is no hostility between men and women. There are no hostilities between black and white. There is no hostility between Republican and Democrat. (laughs) So here's the thing. Practically speaking, this should be so applicable to us. Because what Paul is telling the church is there are some things that are far more important than your perspective and your point of view. There are things that we should be willing to lay down because we understand there is now no hostility between us. The wall of hostility has been torn down in Christ Jesus. But yet we struggle with this. And Paul's saying there's some things that are far more important than these systems that we have built up. He goes on to say, in verse 15, he did this by, sending, uh, by ending the system of law with his commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. This means that your hostility toward anyone else in the body of Christ should be put to death. You liked it better when I was just talking about the diagram, didn't you? (laughs) See, even though Jesus has torn down the wall of hostility, we build walls of hostility all the time. We erect them. Well, I've been hurt. I've been offended. I can't believe they would do that. I can't believe they didn't do that. So I'm erecting this wall of hostility. And then we wonder why churches are so divided and broken and jacked up. It's because we are unwilling to receive the gift that Jesus has given us. And it's not just that we get to go to heaven someday. Part of that gift is that the wall of hostility has been torn down between us. So we hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness and we don't understand why God's not doing a work in our heart. And it's because we've erected this wall of hostility. It's contrary to what Jesus is trying to do. We get hung up in our idiotic identities. And I say that very explicitly. It is idiotic. <clears throat> yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and say it. If everybody you know knows who you voted for in the last presidential election, but they have no idea you're a Christian, I'm not even sure you're really a Christian. I've got a problem with that. Some of you are offended right now. I got good news for you. I'm doing a whole series in the month of October leading up to the presidential election. And if you're offended now, just wait. You're gonna be so offended then. (laughs) I mean, we're gonna lose a bunch of people, I'm sure. But we get hung up on, well, I'm a white male. I'm cisgendered. I'm all these things. And it's idiotic. Let me, let me read another passage to you. This is from Galatians chapter three. Galatians three twenty six says this. For you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus and now that you belong to Christ, you are true children of Abraham. You're his heirs And God's promises to Abraham belong to you. All of our identities are gone except for this primary identity as a child of God. I am a son of God. You are a son or daughter of God. That is it. Everything else is secondary. Nothing else really matters that much. And the problems come when everything gets elevated. 
Here's the issue with that. We get focused on that stuff, and what happens is we forget that as Gentiles, as non-Jewish people, we have been grafted into the family tree, that, that the, the promises that Jewish people have as an inheritance, that the covenant with Abraham that, that Jewish people have as an inheritance, we have as an inheritance. The promises that were given to Abraham are good for us. And this is a blessing, why? Because there are promises associated with this covenant. There is a guarantee associated with this covenant. There is, there is a future and a hope associated with this covenant. And we miss it because we're just, well, I get to go to heaven someday. Well, yeah, that's awesome. I don't wanna underplay that. But we're leaving so much on the table when we misunderstand the fact that the wall of hostility has been broken down. Let me move on. Ephesians two seventeen. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him. He keeps using this language. And peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. Now I mentioned this. Let me go back to the picture of the first temple. Guys, if you don't mind. If you look at this, I wanna, I wanna point this out. He was talking about those who were far away from him. Who were far away from the actual presence of God? Well, it was the Gentiles. They were geographically further away from, from God. And then he says, hey, you need peace just like the people who were near need peace. Now, who were near? Well, it was the Jewish people. They were the people that could go into the outer court, into the inner court, even into the Holy of Holies. He's saying they need peace too. All of you need what Jesus is offering, whether you are far away or near, whether you're an outsider or an insider, whether you are a foreigner or a citizen. This is what he's saying. He's saying all these things that we take identity in, at the end of the day, we all need the peace of God. Verse 19, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're citizens along with all of God's holy people. You're members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We're, we are carefully joined together in him becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. We talked about this idea a couple weeks ago, that we are living stones, that, that we, I hear people all the time say, well, I don't gotta go to church to be a Christian. I, I am the church. Well, yes, you are, but that is an incomplete picture because what Paul tells the Ephesian church is, hey, you are the body of Christ, but you're only part of the body. Hey, you are the temple of God, but you're only a stone in the mason work. And so when we're disconnected, we are an incomplete temple. What makes us complete is when we come together with the rest of the temple where you are stone and I am stone and we are living stones and we are laid on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as our cornerstone and we are being built together as a dwelling place of God. This is why Lone Ranger Christians struggle because we're not made to be alone. We're made to be in community. We're made to be built together in, into the temple of God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We miss it. I wanna put up an, another picture. This is not a scale picture, but there's another picture that's gonna pop up of the, of the temple. And this is an interior view of the temple. And this is something I wanna show you. So yeah, the outside, if you look at the bottom of this picture, you see this is the east, this is the beautiful gate. It was facing uh, the Mount of Olives. 
Um, and so here you have Solomon's porch, you have the court of Gentiles, as we've talked about, the line, the dividing line, the soreg. Then you'd go into the, the proper temple um, facility. You go through the, the beautiful gate and the first court you'd come to is the court of women. And it was called the court of women because if you're a Jewish woman, this is where you could go. You could go further than the Gentiles, but this is where you could go. This is where you stopped. Your journey ended here. You could go to the court of women. So you're better than the Gentiles, but not as good as the Jewish men, apparently. The next court you'd go through is you'd go through the, the, the gate into the hall of Israelites. And the hall of Israelites was a place where Jewish men could go. So Jewish men, they would pass through the Gentile court. They would pass through the, the, the court of women and they would come to the Israelite court. This is where they would go. This is as far as they could go though, unless... They were a priest. If you're a priest, then you could go to the hall of priests, the court of priests. And this is where you could go. And this is as far as you could go unless you had a specific responsibility or duty within the, the proper temple, which is the, the, dark, the dark part on the top. So the dark, dark part on the top has three primary portions. The first is the porch, which would be the lowest part facing the east. The next is the holy place. And the holy place would have the altar of incense, the showbread, and the candlestick. And in two weeks, not next week, but the following week, we're going to get into the holy place and talk more about that specifically. And then you'd go from there into through this this thick curtain into the holy of holies. As I mentioned a minute ago, um, there was only one person who was allowed into the Holy of Holies. It was the high priest, and he was only allowed to go in on the Day of Atonement, which was called Yom Kippur. And he would go in, and he would, he would carry the blood of the sacrifice, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, which was the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. So he'd sprinkle it on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. And this was such a holy place that he had a bell that was attached to his robe, and the reason for the bell is as long as they heard him moving, they knew he was still alive. But if the bell stopped ringing, they knew he had died under the presence of God because he was unholy in the presence of a holy God. So how do you solve that? Because you don't wanna be the guy that has to walk in. If the high priest just got killed, you don't wanna be the one going, I'm sure I'll be fine, right? So they would tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest. He would go in, offer sacrifice, and if he fell over dead, they would just drag his body out. I can't even imagine. They're like, all right, come help me with, with uh, Mordecai. And they just drag him out of the, you know, under the, oh gosh, how do you explain that, right? So what do we see? Well, when you look at the temple, you see this, this filtering. You see this funnel. Anybody can go to the court of Gentiles. And then anybody except the Gentiles can go to the court of women. And then anybody except Gentiles and women can go to the court of Israel. And what we see is it's, it's filtered lower and lower and lower and lower and lower. Fewer and fewer people are allowed to go closer to God. The closer you get to God, the more limited it is. The fewer people that actually do that. There's this idea this, this idea that I got a, a few years ago as I was thinking through this very thing. And the idea is that access demands intimacy. Access demands intimacy. And, and access to God demand, demands holiness. If you want access to God, if you want intimacy with God, it demands holiness. Now, it's not the holiness of the high priest, but it's holiness that comes by being in relationship with God. Um... 
I hate garage sales. Since we're talking about it, I thought I'd throw that. I hate garage sales. Uh, and I've never liked them very much. And here's what normally happens. My wife will say, we need to do a garage sale. All right, when do you wanna do it? Let's do it this weekend. It's Wednesday. And she'll, I'll help you do it. Okay, great. And you know what happens? She doesn't help me do it. I do it by myself. I'm only a little bitter. My therapist is helping me and we're working it out. So, so she is moral support for me, essentially. But this is what happens. I'll be in the garage all Friday morning on my day off. I'll be in the garage. And I've got all my garbage in there that hoping somebody will give me something for it. And so here's what happened the last time we had a garage sale. I'm not kidding. This is exactly what happened. I'm in the garage and a guy rolls up on a bike and he gets off and he's looking a little squirrely, but I'm not trying to judge, but I'm just like, ah, this guy. And he gets off his bike and he walks into my garage. Hey, buddy, how you doing? Good, nice to, and what are you looking, oh, just looking around. And he kind of looks at me and he goes, you're the pastor of that church, aren't you? And I said, maybe? I have no idea. This guy might be killing me in my garage. I don't know who this guy is. He said, I came to your church. He said, when I came to church, you were speaking and you didn't even open the Bible. You didn't even preach one verse of scripture. You didn't even talk about the Bible that day. I said, excuse me? I've never preached where we didn't talk about the scripture. I, that's all we do. That's primarily our function. So I don't know what you're talking about. And after about two minutes, I realized this guy was a little crazy. Like he was a little nuts and he was weird. And so that conversation ended, he left and he was trying to, he was trying to get me to watch these prophecy videos. And he, he was, let me just say, he was staunchly in favor of Cocoa Puffs. How about that? Okay. So he leaves and I'm like, God, thank you that that is over with. And a little bit later, a, wait, a lady walks up and she walks into my garage and she seems nice, big smile, hello. And she's bopping around my stuff. And she goes, are you the pastor of Summit? I think, you know what, this lady's safe. I don't know who she is, but she seems so nice. And I go, yeah, I am. She said, I've been to your church before. And I said, oh, really? And she said, yeah, your wife preached and it was terrible. Like, that's how I'm feeling. And so she tells me why she thinks it was terrible. Like, well, you are clearly stupid. <laughs> like, okay. Like, all right, whatever. And so I tried to explain to her why she was wrong. And man, she just told me, I'll never be back to your church. All right. That was the day I decided I'd never do another garage sale. <laughs> it, is, it is not worth $137 and eight hours of my time and having people browbeat me in my own garage about our church. No, thank you. I'm done. We will just give it to Salvation Army and let them deal with it. I don't care, right? But as we're standing in the garage and we're having this conversation with this man, this man was somebody I didn't even want in my garage. Does that make sense? This was too close. If he would have said, hey, do you mind, can I go in your house and get a drink? Uh, I would love to meet your family. I would have said something like this. Hey, I would love to introduce you to my family. In fact, I've got two people that would love to say hi. Their names are Mr. Smith and Mr. Wesson. They'd love to greet you, <laughs> right? I don't want this guy in my house. He's a stranger. He doesn't belong here. I go, no, thank you. Now, here's the thing. A lot of you, if you said, man, I'd, I'd love to pop by you, bing bong, 
I, hey, great to see you. Come on in. I'd invite you in. We'd sit on the couch. We'd talk. And as we're talking, if you said to me, no, it's so good to be sitting in your house with you today. Hey, listen, I would love to go up to your bedroom and rifle through your drawers. Would that be okay? <laughs> no, it's not okay. You haven't earned that right. We, I love you, but we are not that close, right? But there are people in our lives, they will come to our house and they don't even knock on the door. They just walk in the house. It's like a sitcom, you know, where people just walk in all the time. That's what it's like. We've got people in our lives that'll walk in. They, they feel free. They'll get a drink. They don't wait for me to say, can I get you something to drink? They just get a drink. Do you know why they do that? Because of intimacy. We're close. They don't have to ask. We don't have to be formal. They have access because of intimacy. And this is the thing. So many of us say, God, I want your power. I want your authority. I want what you've got to offer me. And God goes, you can't because there's no intimacy. God, I want your stuff. I want you to bless me. I want you to give me what I need. And God goes, I can't because there's no intimacy because access demands intimacy. If you want access to the Holy of Holies, you better be intimate with God. This is the problem. We, we've set up Christianity in such a way that we go, well, if you just say the right things, if you just come to church, if you just, God's gonna bless you. He's gonna make you healthy. Everything's gonna be perfect in your life. It's just not the case. Let me finish with this passage. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 11 says this, under the old system, the high priest brought the blood of the animal into the holy place as a sacrifice for sin, and the bodies of the animals were burned outside the camp. So the blood was brought into the Holy of Holies. The bodies were taken outside the camp to be burned. So also Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates to make his people holy by means of his own blood. So let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the disgrace he bore. For this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. Here's what I need you to understand. Jesus was an outsider. I'm sorry, Jesus was an insider who became an outsider in order to establish outsiders as insiders. If you go back to the temple, uh, the picture of the temple, we belonged in the court of Gentiles. We did not belong in the Holy of Holies. Jesus belonged in the Holy of Holies. He did not belong in the court of Gentiles. Yet what Jesus did with his sacrificial death on the cross is he traded places with us. He said, you're an outsider that you can't cross this dividing line, but I've broken down the wall of hostility so that you can come in and I will take your place. I will go to Golgotha outside the camp. I will go to the place where the animal sacrifices are burned. I will take the place that I don't deserve for you. This is what Jesus has done. And here's our response in verse 15 of Hebrews, thir uh, Hebrews 13. Therefore, let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. It doesn't say because you've had such a great day, because you feel so good, because God just keeps on blessing. No, it says because you understand what Christ has done, he took your place. He became an, an outsider for you to become an insider. Because of that, we offer up a continual praise. God, if you don't do anything else for me but that, you are worthy of all my praise. God, you're, you're worth every song I can sing, every breath I can breathe. If all you did was trade places with me, you tore down the wall of hostility so that an outsider could become an insider. That's what he's done.
I'm gonna turn it over to our host from Blairsville. They're gonna close out our time, give you a chance to respond. I love you guys very much. Love you more than you know. God bless you. So here in the place, those of you watching online, I just wanna give you a chance to respond today because the reality is some of you might be here, maybe you're very religious. Maybe you're raised in a Catholic school. Maybe you're raised going to church every Sunday. But today you find yourself as an outsider. You recognize there's no intimacy between me and God. I'm an outsider functionally. And Jesus laid down his life, not just so you could go to heaven, so that you could become an insider, so you could know Christ and know intimacy with him. And if you're living a life outside of that, you are not living God's best life for you. So I wanna give you a chance to experience that and to know that. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you for loving us like you do. We don't deserve it. We are a mess. <laughs> we have caused issues in our own lives and the lives of others. We erect walls of hostility where there should be none. But God, you love us anyway. So thank you for the work that you have done on the cross. Thank you for pursuing us like you do. Thank you for loving us unconditionally. I pray today, Lord, we would have an awareness in our own hearts of what you have done. I pray that that would stir up gratitude in us, that we would worship you because of who you are. Lord, I pray for those that recognize today that they're living as outsiders when you are desiring them for, to live as an insider. And I pray that our hearts would be awakened to that. I pray that we would come running to you. So God, have your way in us. Now, with nobody looking around, your head bowed, your eyes closed. If you'd say to me, Ma, I know I'm not really serving God. I know I'm not in a relationship with God. I know that I'm an outsider and I don't wanna be an outsider anymore. I wanna, I wanna know God. Because of the work of Christ, you can. And so if you're here today and you say, Mel, include me in this last prayer. I wanna know God. I'm, I'm sick of being an outsider. I wanna know him. If that's you, would you put your hand up real high where I can see it and you can put it right back down. If you say, Mel, that's me, pray for me. Yeah, thank you, I see you. Thank you on my right, sir. Who else would join these? Yeah, up in the balcony. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Just a few more seconds. Who else? Say, Mel, that's me. Pray for me today. Romans 10, 9 says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna pray a prayer together. All of us in this place are gonna pray a prayer together. I'm gonna give you the words to say but this is your prayer from your heart to God today. And I want you to pray this prayer as a confession of your faith. So everybody in the room, pray this with me. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus, your only son, to pay the price for my sins on the cross. Thank you that Jesus became an insider. I messed up the prayer, but that's okay. Jesus became an outsider to make me an insider. And from this day forward, I commit to serve you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come on, let's give God a round of applause today. <laughs> Scripture says you're a new creation if you prayed that prayer today. Here's what I'd love for you to do. Take one minute and fill out the card that's in the seat back in front of you. Take it to our next step table when we finish here in just a moment. If you'd prefer, you can uh, text Summit PA to the number 94,000. Let us know about your decision that way. But please, please, please let us know about your decision. We want to help you grow in your faith and take the next step and begin to walk with Christ. So please take advantage of that. Even if you text, stop by our next step table in the lobby.
The worship team's gonna lead us in one final song. And during this last song, I wanna encourage you, can we really worship God in this last song? Not because we feel like it, not because our day is perfect, but because we acknowledge, God, you are worthy of every praise. So God, I'm gonna honor you, I'm gonna celebrate you. And, and let's just see what God will do. And while we're singing, our prayer team's gonna be down here on the, in the front of this room. And if you need prayer for any reason at all, I would encourage you, uh, step out, find one of our prayer team, let us pray with you. So why don't you stand to your feet all over the room. Let's worship together one more time before we go. Feel free to stick around for our business meeting at one. But before we do that, let's just worship together, guys. I love you more than you know. I'm so glad I get to be your pastor. God bless you. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcast.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to Summit Podcasts, and we will see you in the next episode.